Hi, everyone. I'm Judith Walker, as introduced. Thank you very much for being here today. I'm really excited about this topic um, because it's something that obviously I deal with on a daily basis, and I'm really excited about the speakers we have here today as well. So what makes something a challenging region? I think everybody knows that everybody has challenges in their business. How do we acquire customers? There's all sorts of different things that challenge you in your business. But when we're talking about challenging regions, think a little bit outside the box. So it isn't just uh, the fact that it's rural or far away, the last mile we talk about all the time. It could be economical or financial challenges, the fact that your customers don't have access to finance, cultural challenges, political challenges, and settings that are challenging in themselves. So crisis settings, war zones, all sorts of different regions that are difficult to access and difficult to work in. But all of these challenges, as difficult as they are to overcome and the barriers, it also presents very interesting opportunities. The more difficult somewhere is to go and to get to, the less likely that you're going to have a lot of competition in that space. So in my own business, distributing household energy products, really in very rural and remote places, I see how big the opportunity is to work there. There is a thirst and a demand for products. I see the solutions that we're able to provide, and that is very, very exciting because my market's roughly three billion people. So that's quite a few. Um, I'm really proud to work in very underserved rural regions. We look in uh, the mountain kingdom of Lesotho, um, where nothing is offered to our customers at all, and we are often the first people that touch uh, base with those customers and provide financial services and provide any products at all. But why do entrepreneurs go the extra mile? So the question here is what drives someone to go to that most difficult place? Why not stay closer to home, do something a little bit easier, make your millions, have your exit strategy? What is it that pushes people to really work in these really very challenging regions? That's what I'm very excited to welcome our guests uh, to talk about today. We have two entrepreneurs with very different challenging markets that they address. Uh, and I think it'll be really interesting to hear from them how they differ, but also what the similarities are. To hear what lessons they take from here to their challenging regions, but also what do they take from those challenging regions and bring it back here so that you guys can implement them in your businesses. What is relevant here? What is exciting? So first of all, I'd like to welcome uh, Ryan Sturgill. He has one of those sort of very long lists of experience and CV that embarrasses uh, anyone else. I'm just very talented. So he's the director of Gaza Sky Geek, uh, sorry, Gaza Sky Geeks, which is a startup accelerator. It is a digital outsourcing agency, and it's the first full-stack coding academy in Palestine. Very cool. Thank you for the woo there, enthusiasm. Uh, he has a history of establishing uh, startup incubators in Afghanistan with the support of Google. He's worked in business and startups in Palestine, the UAE, Iraq, Pakistan. He managed investments for the Abraj Group. Uh, he started originally with JP Morgan in New York. He has an MBA from MIT and an MPA from Harvard Kennedy. Please welcome to the stage with a very, very warm welcome, Ryan Sturgill. Thank you very much for that <laughs> very kind introduction. Um, so my talk's um, called Breaching Blockades and Building Community, and those are two of the <laughs> main things that we do at Gaza Sky Geeks. Um, 
What are we? We're the uh, first Code Academy in Palestine. We're really an ecosystem-building entity. Our mission is to empower anybody who wants to earn an income online with the resources to do so. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Gaza, the context that we work in. Um, spoiler alert, it's a difficult market. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Gaza Sky Geeks and our work, the impact that we're having. And then I want to talk a little bit about some of the ways that you can get involved in, in supporting the work that we do. Um, just briefly about me, because I get the question, you know, what is a white guy from Chicago doing in Gaza running a tech hub? Um, in short, I was an Arabic nerd and recovering investment banker and decided that much better use of my time would be to go back to the Middle East and support entrepreneurs who are trying to start businesses. Uh, that's really turned into a passion for trying to figure out ways to break down the structural barriers um, that prevent entrepreneurs in emerging markets from having the same tools and access that an entrepreneur in a place like Amsterdam or New York might have. So figuring out the workarounds to payments, uh, legal issues, how do you channel investment into uh, a company that's in a far-flung frontier market. Um, so about Gaza. Uh, when you think of Gaza, you probably think of an image like this. Uh, tires burning, people throwing stones, um, maybe something like this, and at its worst, uh, something like this. These are all just images from the past few weeks uh, around the protests that have uh, been ignited. Um, and what the media largely attributed to as protests around the United States moving its embassy to Jerusalem. Um, but really, the reason that Gaza is boiling over right now is that for over a decade, two million people have been under a blockade uh, with no access in or out. Uh, when drones, uh, the next sort of very innovative use of drone technology, you know, when they're not dropping tear gas on protesters, um, this is a lot more what daily life looks like. Um, kids who have nothing to do, walled in, uh, with very few opportunities. Uh, it's two million people. It's about the size of Amsterdam. So imagine not being able to leave a place the size of Amsterdam for over a decade and growing up in that environment. And there's obviously no hash. There's no alcohol or anything like that. So it's not exactly a place that you would want to stay, even if it is Amsterdam. Um, but just to give you a sense of sort of the, the size of, of, of Gaza and, and the limitations that people have, uh, it's, it's really been penned in. And this is really, this is a mural across the street from our office that I look at all the time. And this is really, I think, sums up the way a lot of people feel in Gaza. Um, you know, it's a place where people are closed in. There's been three wars in the past 10 years where the infrastructure has been devastated. There's only four hours of electricity every day. 95% um, of the water is undrinkable because there's no power uh, to even do sewage, sanit uh, sewage treatment. The uh, population is hugely dependent on foreign aid, uh, charity handouts from the UN, and even those are basically um, in danger of being cut. Uh, it's one of the most highly educated populations in the region, highest levels of tertiary education anywhere. Um, but it's a place that's about as cut off as North Korea. Uh, there's very few job opportunities. 70% of female university grads are unemployed. Um, running a brick-and-mortar business is really tough because imports and exports are restricted. Um, there's no airport. You can't even fish more than um, 
a, f a couple miles offshore. Um, and for everybody who's on their phones, gasp, there's not even 3G data. Um, we're still back in the, in the days of 2G uh, because you can't bring in the equipment to, to, uh, to have 3G. So that's all the bad news. Um, the, the good news is that Gaza is hardwired with fiber internet. Um, and so if you can uh, keep your laptop charged, if you can keep a Wi-Fi router on, uh, then you're basically in business. So even when the power goes out, as it does occasionally in our co-working space, uh, the internet stays on, and you can upload, download, just as if you were in Amsterdam. Uh, and that's the opportunity for tech in Gaza. Um, it's hardwired with fiber internet. There's Wi-Fi everywhere. Smartphone penetration is super high. The population is super educated. Uh, computer science grads are coming out of the universities, but they need an outlet. Um, and it's also very competitive. So the cost of living there is really low. Um, you can find full-stack JavaScript developers there for about $1,000 a month. And that's really the opportunity that, uh, that Google saw, along with Mercy Corps, which is an international uh, NGO that operates in 45 countries across the world, working on some of the most difficult challenges. Uh, they partnered up with Google uh, about 10 years ago and decided, let's start Gaza Sky Geeks. Let's start a, a program and a space uh, where entrepreneurs can come, where anybody who wants to work in tech and earn an income online can come uh, to get empowered to do that. And so we're very proud that Google for Entrepreneurs has been one of our partners, um, uh, ongoing partners, and very proud to be a part of the Google for Entrepreneurs network. So I'll just run through a little bit of, of the work that we do and some of the impacts. Um, first and foremost, I, I talk about the work that we do as a community-building enterprise. Uh, I think if when you're working in difficult markets, um, a lot of, you know, especially where there are tons of smart people, and there are smart people everywhere, but figuring out how to bring them together, especially in places that are war-torn or where there isn't sort of a, a social space, civil society, a space where people come together and feel comfortable sharing, a big part of what we do is trying to find the best developers, uh, the best designers, bring them together under one roof, and actually start sharing ideas and information. So we have a safe, um, inclusive, really vibrant co-working space. It's an 800 square meter space. Uh, some people have um, very flatteringly called us the TQ of Gaza City, um, which we're, <laughs> we hope to live up to one day. Um, it's very much a community-driven space um, and very volunteer-driven. So we didn't outsource you know, sort of the design of the space to somebody. We gave it to the community. We said, hey, designer, here's your wall. Do what you want with it. Um, People feel a real sense of ownership over the space um, and, is, and to have them drive it rather than an outside organization or a guy from Chicago come in and tell them what to do. We really try to empower the community in every step of the way. Um, we have a dedicated generator that runs 12 hours a day, six days a week, that lets people work. And we have over 100 users um, in our space every day. It's really important to us that the space is public we try to drive as much traffic through our co-working space as possible to get people to meet each other. And we have a co-working revenue model, but it's paramount to us uh, as part of our sort of social mission that more and more people in tech can make connections and have that serendipity that you see in co-working spaces all over the world. Um, we, our work also falls into sort of three main buckets. We run a coding academy. This is Palestine's first ever coding academy. Um, geared really towards the latest tech stacks, European startup market. It's JavaScript-based. 
um, with some React. And we partnered with uh, an amazing organization, it's the Tuition Free Bootcamp in London called Founders and Coders. Um, and the whole rationale behind uh, their teaching is that it's a pay-it-forward model. We get alumni to come back and teach the subsequent cohorts, which keeps the cost down, um, and also maintains that community buy-in as well. We reserve 50% of the seats for, for women. Uh, women's inclusivity is super, super important to us, and I'll talk about that a bit more in a sec. Um, but everything that we do is really trying to prepare the next generation of, of techies to be able to interact with clients abroad, uh, whether they're in Europe, the US, Australia. And so client interaction professionalism drives, drives all of that work for us. Um, we've done about four cohorts so far, 37 graduates. All of them are working as freelancers or in full-time contracted employment. But also there's something, I think, just the... Uh, in a place like Gaza, and maybe people take it for granted. I don't, how many people in here are coders? Raise your hand. Okay, so like good, maybe like half. Um, I, so coding is like a language unto itself and is a way for, self, for people to sort of have self-expression, I think. And there's something hugely powerful that we've seen. Um, giving people the opportunity to code is a form of self-expression to put their product out into the world, have people interact with it, get feedback on it. Um, there's something actually really life-affirming about that, and it really gives people who are learning how to code in, in Gaza a real sense of purpose, which is something I also want to underscore. Um, we also teach people how to freelance. So anybody who wants to work on Upwork, if you can clean a database, design a logo, um, we're going to help people figure out how to do that. And so we partnered with Upwork, companies like Payoneer, to figure out how to resolve cross-border payment issues for freelancers. Because um, there's no PayPal in Palestine, um, we run a, cam a social media campaign called PayPal for Palestine. Um, if you want to tweet at Dan Schulman, the CEO of PayPal, and use that, uh, we'd appreciate it. Um, so there's no PayPal there. Moving money across borders is very difficult, but we're finding that other companies are willing to look at those market opportunities, uh, both for the market opportunity and out of a sense of fairness. Um, so Payoneer. Um, Stripe is another one that we found uh, to, be, to be hugely supportive of the work that we're doing. Um, our freelancing, just in the past uh, nine months or so, about $300,000 in income uh, that they've earned. And this is actually, we're starting to even expand this beyond Gaza. So behind me are our freelancing trainers actually training um, Syrians in Iraqi refugee camps uh, um, how to freelance online and get connected to Upwork. So we're not just uh, you know, taking information from Upwork and keeping it in Gaza, but we're trying to take the best freelancers in Gaza, have them share that knowledge with the broader Middle East. And then we run a, a startup accelerator. So we work a lot with AngelHack. Partnerships is something that has really helped us thrive. Developing partnerships with um, other accelerators, with other payment companies has been critical. We're very product focused. We run a four-month acceleration program. Um, they run the gamut across industries, um, but very much targeting outside markets like Saudi Arabia, uh, the GCC. This is just a sample of some of the, the companies. One of them, uh, and this is, these are the founders of those companies uh, in our space, one of them, uh, Noor Al-Khodri, she's the CEO of a startup called Mommy Helper. Uh, we took her through our acceleration program last year. Uh, she won at the demo day that we held in Gaza. But then we worked with Stripe, 
Uh, the Stripe Atlas's program is phenomenal. The Collison brothers are doing amazing things to support entrepreneurs in emerging markets. We work with them to incorporate her company in Delaware. Um, she pitched to investors uh, in Dubai across the region via Skype because she can't leave Gaza. Um, and we actually were able to do the first simple agreement for future equity, uh, Delaware company, Gazan founder, with an angel investor in Dubai. So these are some of the, the innovative things that we're trying to do to figure out how to get more capital into a place like Gaza. After that, she went on, we actually were able to get her out to start up Istanbul, where she won second place last year at Startup Istanbul out of hundreds of startups from across the Middle East and getting to hang out with the likes of Tim Draper and, and others. So it's a huge win, win for Gaza. We facilitated about uh, 600,000 in seed investment into 13 startups over the past few years. And most importantly, we're seeing uh, entrepreneurs who are now the next generation of mentors, so paying it back, uh, those who go and win and make progress, even if they fail, they come back and they're seeding the next generation of startup mentors. Um, we do a lot of work with women, so it's hugely important to us uh, to get more women involved in tech. 42% of our community is female. Um, we start teaching coding uh, at age 10. Women are doing amazingly in STEM fields in Gaza, um, but culturally there's a lot of pressure to get married, start a family. So we employ a full-time inclusivity manager to go out and talk to families, get them more involved in tech. Um, and that's one of the reasons that, that we think we have such a, a high sort of precedent-setting level of women's participation. We can't do the work that we do without uh, mentors. So we bring mentors like Mustafa Sezgin, who used to run engineering at Uber right here in Amsterdam, to come to Gaza to, to teach people software development. Um, we bring about five mentors a month into Gaza, and if we get a bunch of people at a time, we'll do like a party bus in Gaza and come in. Um, these are some people from Google, actually. This is the crossing between Israel and Gaza um, that's about a kilometer long. It's just a cage that you walk through. Um, but it's also very flat, and if you're into skateboarding, you can skate across uh, the Gaza border. So if you're interested, check us out on our website. We're always looking for mentors to come to teach more people. Finally, the, the last thing, latest evolution uh, in the Gaza Sky East journey is as we've started teaching more people how to code, uh, bringing freelancers together, we have become really a convener for digital work, a broker for, for outsourced jobs. Um, we've launched our agency online, um, and we encourage you all to think about outsourcing your next project to Gaza. Uh, the developers are excellent quality. We run them through a six-month training program. JavaScript, React, um, you can hire them as remote resources for as little as $30 a day, um, which is super competitive. And we have a British engineering manager who oversees all of their work. Um, we've worked with clients from Spain to Chicago uh, to the UK, and we're trying to build up a track record uh, to really put Gaza on the map uh, as an outsourcing hub. Um, so if you're interested in helping or learning more, I'd love to talk to you afterwards, um, but you can also go to our website uh, to hire Gazan Tech Talent uh, Mentor. If you want to mentor remotely or in person, uh, you can get in touch with us there. Uh, we're always looking to host Gazan interns, either remotely or in person. Occasionally, we can get permits to, to bring people out. Follow us online, um, and we're always looking for more connections to investors and media. Um, that's our pitch. Thank you very much. Uh, and I appreciate it.
chat just in general. Really very, very cool work. Um, we're going to be able to deep dive a little bit later uh, when we get to our questions. But for now, I would like to introduce our next speaker, Thor Mueller is from Off-Grid Electric. It's a startup that is on track to light one million homes in Africa, which I think is awesome. Uh, he previously co-founded Get Satisfaction and served as the CEO and later the CTO for that company. It's a people-powered customer service with 70,000 customer communities. And he's also the publisher of the New York Times bestseller, Get Lucky, How to Put Planned Serendipity to Work for You and Your Business, which I'm keen to learn more about because I do love a bit of good serendipity. Uh, with no further ado, please welcome to the stage, Thor. I love that transition music. I thought she introduced me as uh, our next seeker, which I, I kind of think is appropriate given the, uh, the, the challenge context of this, this talk. So I'm going to tell you a bit about what we do and, uh, and the specific challenges we've had and how we've solved them. Uh, our challenge that we've, that we've selected is actually a, a double whammy. It's solar powering Africa. So solar power, obviously, a, an industry, a technology industry that, is, that tends to bring grown men and women to their knees because it's so challenging, uh, including some of Elon Musk's family members who are on our board. Um, and in Africa, which is, I think, um, most people know, has a long history of uh, institutional and infrastructure challenges that uh, we have seen progress on but are proved very difficult to address uh, across the, the pan-African uh, community. Uh, so let's dig in. This is Kervin. He is a pretty typical nine-year-old in Tanzania. He, when we met him three or four years ago, um, studied by candlelight because there was one kerosene lantern in the house and that was busy in the kitchen while the mother made dinner. Um, the kerosene lantern was filling the, the house with smoke. That is carcinogenic. It's the equivalent of smoking uh, three packs of cigarettes a day. And, uh, and so we were dealing with challenges to his educational future. Um, his eyes were strained, and, uh, and of course, his um, environment was unhealthy. So, and it, it was this way for the entire family. Uh, it's Kervin we think about, Kervin and his family, we think about when we get up every morning to solve the energy problem. Uh, it's a very human problem. It's not about power plants. It's about what goes on in that house. Um, and so our, our solution is to provide solar systems that go in these homes that can power a range of everyday items. Lighting, of course. And we started with lights and a phone charger. Today, our solution includes fans, radios, and televisions. It turns out that television is the killer app for solar energy in Africa. <laughs> Shocker. Um, and, uh, and we do this in ways that work for these families. Um, but if it was easy, of course, everybody would have it. And uh, when we look at Africa, we, we, you know, we, it's a massive continent with you know, a cha challenging history. Um, there's about a billion people in Africa, and it's projected to be about 2 billion by 2050. So we're talking about um, you know, the human scale, you know, uh, sorry, uh, mass, massive human impact to solve this problem. Uh, most of these people have either no access to the grid or they have 
a very unreliable grid. And by unreliable, I mean three to six hours of energy a day, which is the case in the, the biggest city in sub-Saharan Africa, Lagos. Which is shocking, right? Three to six hours a day of energy on a, on a grid, on a professional grid. So they've had to resort to a range of solutions, many of which are unhealthy, mostly in, involving uh, burning fossil fuels. The flip side, of course, is that when you look at this map of radiation, you can see that nowhere gets more sun than Africa. It's a huge opportunity if we can only get solar systems into these homes. And, uh, and so that's what we set out to do. And, it, and from an economic standpoint, it seems very doable. I mean, you look at the numbers, and you can see that six of the top 10 fastest growing economies are in Africa. Uh, the, the top 10 economies in Africa are growing at an average of 6.7%. And, uh, and the middle class is growing equally fast. Um, the other facet of this is that we see in Africa this phenomenon which you've probably heard about, which is leapfrogging. The fact that there is so little ma mature or uh, sophisticated infrastructure in most of these markets means that they can skip past the technology of 20 years ago and go straight to cell phones. So no copper lines, but cell phones. We're, we're saying, the areas where there's no grid, we should skip straight forward to renewable energy. Uh, and the trick is, how can you make that workable economically and structurally for these communities? So just to anchor your imagination a little bit, because I think when we think Africa, uh, we may think of everything from, um, from the uh, starving children in Ethiopia, which I, when I was growing up, there was ads on TV, which dwelled on these, these uh, very sad images. But I go to Africa three to four times a year for several weeks each time, and I see images like this. I mean, rich cultures, happy people, ingenious people building solutions despite the fact that many of their institutions have failed them. So Tanzania, of course, is the home to many of the world's most popular safari destinations. Rwanda, 30 years ago or so, was uh, going through one of our most notorious genocides, but today is the shining light of a well-run, or at least a, um, a tightly run country. It's, it's almost zero corruption, uh, huge international investment, fast-growing economy, and, um, and so something is happening in these places that, that contradict our, what we think of when we think Africa. Uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, the source of 40% of the world's cocoa beans. If you have a Cadbury bar, it's probably a Cote d'Ivoire bar. And, and again, incredibly uh, rich culture culturally, even though most people don't have access to re re reliable energy. So uh, lots to work with here and incredibly inspiring. The challenge of, is that when you come at, to solving these problems, like I do from a San Francisco-based technology uh, perspective, you start by thinking, okay, which... Which things that have worked before can I throw at this problem? Or if you're a technologist, a coder, you're thinking, which libraries can I string together to build an app that will solve the problem? We start with technical solutions. And one of the themes I'd like to, to reinforce here is that, yes, technology is a key part of the solution. But they don't make any sense without a, a deep understanding of the, the social context, the human factors that people are really dealing with on the ground. I can't tell you how many... Uh, solutions we've built over the last four years since I've been with the company that, are, uh, that weren't used, or they weren't used as we expected. So we've had to get very good at creating feedback loops with these communities. 
because we, because we're in uh, five countries now, I showed you three, but we're um, that's in East and West Africa, and our teams are spread out between San Francisco, Amsterdam, Russia. Uh, it requires a, a very different approach to maintaining that insight into our customers' daily needs. So let me walk you through five quick challenges and how we solve them. Each one is core to our business. The first one is that our customers can't afford our product, most of them. They can't afford to pay cash for our product, which um, at the, the mainstream of our product line is 500, 500 to 1,000 US dollars uh, to buy it outright. So most people don't have that under their, their mattress. So how can we allow them to afford that? The answer, of course, is to finance it. Let them pay over time. Only problem is these people, for the most part, these communities are unbanked. They don't have uh, either financial literacy or relationships with financial institutions, which means they don't have a credit history, which means banks or other financial institutions can't lend to them, so they're stuck in a kind of vicious cycle. So we've had to come up with solutions, and I will say that our whole industry has had to come up with solutions. Um, so we didn't invent the pay-as-you-go model, but we, we uh, developed our own technical solution to implement it. Pay-as-you-go um, is allowing people to make uh, small payments over time towards a purchase of something. It, it was innovated by the telecom companies so that people didn't need to commit to uh, plans, you know, where they paid the same amount each month. Of course, it's different when you're financing an asset where somebody is having to pay for that asset, in this case, the $1,000 for the solar system. Somebody has to pay for that up front. So what we do is, and I, I, uh, when we talk about the, the economic development of these communities, one of the major turning points for them has been the rise of cell phone adoption, which was 10% you know, 15 years ago and is now over 80% in many markets. Um, and then on the heels of that, mobile money. So the way people make digital payments now in these markets is by putting cash value on their phone, which then allows them to transfer it to anybody else who has an account. In Kenya, over 50% of the GDP runs through mobile money. So this is the, a key enabling element for solving the credit problem. So what we do is we allow our customers to pay small increments towards their, the total value of their, their purchase over the course of up to three years. And we send them an unlock code, either to their phone, which they then punch into this little keypad, which then unlocks it. So that they don't pay, they don't have access to their, their solar system. Um, or our new systems allow us to unlock remotely. I'll come back to why that, uh, the first part is important in a minute. Um, so the, the mechanics of this technical solution um, was a huge unblocker to allowing us to provide credit. The, um, the details, of course, are, are far more complicated because, of course, people need their energy even when they don't have money sometimes. So we have to build flexibility in the payment models. Um, the unanticipated benefit of be able to provide this pay-as-you-go model is that we end up with a credit profile of each and every one of our customers which allows us to then create new credit offerings through our partners to those very customers. So there's systems change embedded in solving these, these very difficult problems. Challenge two, the uh, unreliable SMS delivery. People, it, our customers don't have email, they do have phones, so we communicate with them through SMS. Our key interaction would be reminding them that they need to pay. Like, 
any of us, they would forget. And unfortunately, they can't set up recurring payments with mobile money. So, uh, and we're also sending them their unlock codes through SMS. So if it worked perfectly, everybody would be reminded to pay, they'd pay, they'd get their codes, and they'd have a flawless experience. But unfortunately, SMS doesn't always reach the phones. It only reaches the phones about 70 to 80% of the time, and unpredictably so. And there's lots of technical reasons we had to figure out about this. But it's causes to rethink uh, our entire interface. Unlike uh, technology pure play, we have to think about how do we fail? How does the, um, the customer contact us and use our call center as a kind of UI when that happens? Um, how do we build resiliency into our communications? Since we, we can't predict when SMS fails, we have to develop sensors to uh, identify when that, that's likely and then resend the, the SMSs. And then our new, new products allow us to communicate directly with the device. And now literacy is a big problem for us as well, and not just uh, that people can't read. About 30% of our customers can't read. Um, but we need to communicate with them through textual means. And, uh, and so what we've discovered is that it's not a binary a household or a customer is literate or not. Somebody in that household, usually the children or a relative, knows how to read. And so we're actually communicating with a community. Uh, a, a parent might hand the phone over to their kid and, tell them, and ask them to explain what the phone says. So we, we're, when we're writing SMSs and when we're coming up with our strategies for communication, we're, we're having to consider these social dynamics. Uh, we also have to consider maybe a robocall it would be better than a, 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 an SMS. Uh, so um, more um, local customs have to, uh, have to influence how we think about the design process. The other aspect of this is that literacy is beyond just textual literacy. We built some apps for our staff that included Google Maps for finding homes, and yet we found out that very few of them really understood how to, how to read a map the way that those of us here who use Google Maps all the time do. And so we actually had to throw out the Google Maps and go to a more descriptive approach for, for wayfinding. Which brings me to no addresses. Almost none of our homes in our rural communities have addresses. And we can say, well, why don't we just throw a GPS uh, geolocation on each home that we visit and install solar on. And we do that. But the problem is that GPS, A, can be highly inaccurate uh, if you don't manage the, uh, you don't monitor the accuracy re readings on the device. So it's that's a very technical part of the solution. Um, another part is that even if you're reasonably accurate, if you're in a dense community, you can't, you can't disambiguate this home from the three around it. Which means that we need to be tracking the folk descriptions of these spaces just as much. What is it? Um, uh, in this previous slide, I'll show you a baobab tree. A typical uh, direction to a home would be go to the baobab tree, turn left, go down the white road, not the off-white road. When you see the rock with the arrow painted in chalk, then go through 30 meters and look for one of the three houses. Like that's a typical uh, way that you would find a home or a hotel for that matter. So the, the, the final fail over here is local social networks. You, you inevitably have to ask somebody once you get to that final three homes, can somebody tell me where Mama Cass lives? And hopefully they can understand your accent. So um, 
these kinds of solutions are critical. And again, you can see that technology is one part, but understanding the local context is even more important. Um, finally, there is no FedEx or UPS in these communities. We've had to build our own supply chains that allow us to, take, to send uh, boxes and solar systems from a warehouse across um, local buses that look something like this to a, a motorcycle driver who will then drop it off at a little shop that to only then be picked up by a, an installer. So the impact that we've had is we now, over a million people wake up to our electrical systems, our, our solar power systems across Africa. And uh, we have over 1,600 staff who are working, uh, many, most of them in Africa, who are learning what it means to work for a modern startup. And uh, as you can see, we're working with our customers through the design of our products to create financial literacy and credit that then can be extended to help them help rise the tides in their, uh, their local economies. And hopefully, we're showing that you can take a social impact venture and scale it in a profitable way. So thank you for your time. Do we leave the stage? Uh, shall we take a seat? I'd like to invite Ryan back up here as well. Um, so this is fun because we kind of get to talk through a, a few of the things that you guys uh, brought up. And for me, so many familiar challenges there in, in my business. Um, same, the directions. I have some tips for you. I've got some great stuff that I'm working on. But anyway, so um, what we've discussed a lot is uh, all the, the things, the technologies that we're taking into these regions in order to implement them there and how we can bring knowledge from outside, mentors from outside, technology from outside of that country. I'd like to hear from each of you just very briefly, what's one thing that you think you'd like to bring back here and kind of share with the audience here? What can they implement in their companies that you feel is missing here but you find uh, in, in the regions that you're working in? Uh, Ryan, perhaps we can start with you. Sure. Um, I think one of the, uh, having worked in a bunch of big companies before and then going to a place like Gaza, um, the, the amount of, I think, community buy-in that you have to have in, you know, when you're going into these markets, um, like really understanding local nuance, local culture, um, local networks, um, how you're going to interface with the local payment providers or the local banks, like really developing strong personal relationships um, when you're going, and this is, you know, for a larger company, say here, that might be trying to go into these markets. But I think it also, I mean, the same thing applies if you're a company in Amsterdam, probably trying to do something in Amsterdam, is really thinking about the people behind the business and who you're really trying to serve um, getting very close to them and building strong relationships with the people who are between you and the customer. So for us, like really building strong relationships with like local banking partners, um, really trying to gather as much feedback as possible from people in the community, um, really trying to have much more of a community kind of driven approach and, and hearing what those people want. Great. Thor? So we think a lot about the unintended consequences of changing lifestyles, <laughs> right? Because it's very different to suddenly go from a um, kerosene lamp to having a TV on in the evening. Yeah. And um, you know, it changes your, your evening entertainment. It changes your possibly education, your political uh, engagement, and so on. Um, 
and a lot of people would point out that there might be a, a dark side to, to putting TVs in, in you know, homes that aren't used to it. Are we, are we implanting sort of consumerism um, in communities that haven't um, had that as a primary property? Um, so we do naturally think about you know, how do we do this in a way which is empowering the people, where we put them in charge, we, we, we want to be at their service, and try to avoid the unintended consequences of um, you know, bad habits, bad, sure. bad behavior. Credit is another thing. We don't want to create a, a, a habit of being in debt, yeah. right? So I think that you know, when it comes to our technology businesses, we, we also should be doing this no matter what the market, because we are changing the fabric of society. Right? Whether we're creating a simple social network and changing how people coordinate or share information uh, or how we transport ourselves across town. I mean, we're, we're, we have a responsibility to think about the dark side as well as all the optimistic sides. That's so interesting because actually, so yesterday I briefly watched Will I Am's talk um, and, and what he was saying at the, the Shiva's Venture Finals last night and he had the same thing. He said, we're so good at marketing products. We're so good at reaching people. Why aren't we doing with this with the kinds of things that we, yeah. you know, that we believe in, the social good, that element of it. And I think as social entrepreneurs, I think we all relate to, to that. Like we're, we're so good at forcing people to eat Pop-Tarts. Like why are we not using that power for other things. It was, like the, it was the first episode of Silicon Valley mm -hmm. where they're pitching some meaningless B2B product yeah. and they're talking about changing the world. Yeah. Right? And we, so everything we do necessarily is changing the world as technologists. Mm. Uh, and, but we, but uh, we're, we're always selling. We're always trying to raise money, convince people to use our products. So it's, it's hard to actually stop and say, what if I'm destroying the world? Yeah. What if I'm the supervillain? Deep, deep there. Is this clock suggesting that the whole thing is over now, or is that per question? Oh, we are actually out of time. Five more minutes? Excellent, because that's really, um, really enjoying this conversation. So um, I did want to get a little bit into just a couple of deep dives with each of you. So a quick one for you, Ryan. Um, you're working in a region where potentially, I, I would think, you would struggle to find investors in the region because of the financial risk, security-related issues, um, some policy obstacles. What can we learn from you in, in that sort of field? Sure. Um, so it's a, the whole region itself is pretty disjointed, and there's no sort of common market <laughs> at all. And so each country has its own regulation, so there's whole issue, issues with if you're an entrepreneur in Gaza trying to target Saudi Arabia and dealing with Saudi regulations and trying to target an entire region like that, there's tons of complication. One of the huge advantages, I think, is trying to set up, uh, if you're a startup, figuring out a cost-effective place to, to set up your business, first of all, as sort of the parent company. Um, like I said, Stripe has been phenomenal with that, um, so we're actually taking Gazan founders, uh, you know, with the Stripe Atlas program, incorporating them in the U.S., the marketing team, the developers, everybody's in Gaza. Um, but then, you know, they can have a U.S. bank account, run payments all over the world. Um, that's that's been huge, and and you know, without actually having to leave Gaza, get on a plane, and go to the U.S. Um, so having just access to those sort of payment resources has sort of been a game changer, and we're we're really excited about that. Um, I think that also there's just a large degree of um, 
I'd say ignorance on the part of like big, like sort of these big solution providers that provide very low cost, easy to access tools for entrepreneurs who are building tech businesses. Um, like Payoneer, for example, is one of the biggest uh, uh, prepaid debit card companies in the world. Um, but we, we just, you know, they, they weren't even really aware of the issues and sort of Palestinians not being able to really access the cards. So we just have to do a lot of outreach to educate companies. Like we do this, we're trying to do this with PayPal, we're doing this with international banks. Um, and I think once you lay out the case for them, then, you know, you can uh, get them on board. But just expecting sort of uh, the, the system to sort of, waiting for the system to sort of catch up to you is not something we decided that we can do. And so we're actively out there not just supporting the entrepreneurs, but getting in front of, you know, the, the people who can break down the structural barriers of payments and legal issues, working with law firms on um, how to structure documents in a way that are friendly to um, both the entrepreneurs and the investors. I think, like, if you're going to be promoting tech businesses in these markets, you have to really think about not just the businesses themselves and making connections like maybe you would do in a place like Amsterdam, but, like, really talking to all of the the bigger pieces of, of uh, that go into that business relationship. Very cool. So be proactive and identify solutions and then hunt people down to make sure that they provide them to you. It sounds like pretty good advice. Uh, and Thor, so I think we can agree that 10, 15 years ago, it wouldn't be possible to do what you're doing now. Uh, and I feel the same way about my business. And, and it, it's because the, the cost and the availability of technology has just grown and come down. Um, what do you think the role of mobile tech is now? I mean, you, you spoke about feature phones. A lot of people do have phones, but they're not smartphones. Where do you see this growing in the next even couple of years? Well, one of the most interesting things is, is how the credit models are emerging around um, monitoring your uh, receipts, your like mobile money receipts, yeah. and other activity, Facebook activity. And they're creating credit pre predictions based on that activity. So you're seeing, you know, I used to, before I joined this business, I was kind of a, a finance, big finance skeptic. But after 2008, it was easy to say, banks bad, finance bad, they're going to destroy the world. Well, um, going to Africa, I, I've come to think very differently. I think credit, when it's used responsibly, unlocks human potential. So seeing how mobile phones can provide uh, insights into customers to um, allow banks here in the West to come more confidently invest, that's a game changer. Yeah. yeah, and you mentioned leapfrogging earlier, and I think we're going to see that in the fintech uh, in Africa, absolutely. And it's yep. very exciting. I know I'm personally very excited about it. Guys, thank you so much. You've been a wonderful audience. Thank you to the speakers, Thor, Ryan. It was so interesting to hear you thank guys you. talk about your project. It was a great pleasure for me. I hope it was a pleasure for all of you. I think we're probably very much out of time. So thank you very much. Thank you.